Welcome to the Modern Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified holistic health coach, intuitive eating specialist, and health at every size advocate. Cozy up with me each week for empowering conversations with ambitious women as we share real stories around our relationships with food, body, and moving through life in the modern world. Hi. Welcome back. Welcome to this very special episode of the Modern Girl podcast. I have Rebecca Eyre with us today, and she is the CEO of Project Heal, which is one of my favorite companies out there right now. Project Heal is a national nonprofit organization whose mission is to break down barriers to eating disorder treatment for the 24 million plus people that the current system is failing. And we do talk about Project Heal in this conversation, but I was so grateful that Rebecca took the time to share her own story. And as you may or may not know from listening to this podcast, we believe that storytelling is so deeply powerful for connecting and healing and transforming and providing courageous opportunities for others to feel seen and heard and witnessed wherever you are in your life. And Rebecca's story is really powerful. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about her before we dive in today. Rebecca is an eating disorder therapist by training and has made it her life's mission to create equitable resources and opportunities for people to heal their relationships with food and body and find freedom. She's queer, lives in Brooklyn, and spends her free time cooking, reminiscing about pre-pandemic karaoke, and watching crime shows. Rebecca's awesome. You are going to fall in love with her. And one of the things that I appreciate so much about Rebecca is her passion and her purpose and her unwavering commitment to this incredibly courageous work. Um, This has a very special place in my heart and I'm just really grateful to be partnering with this organization. And I signed on with them as an ambassador earlier this year. I'm hoping to become more involved um, in the summer months, but I was really excited to at least partner with them by providing an opportunity for for you to learn more about this organization and their members as well too and just the heart and soul of this company and it is their birthday which is why we're releasing the episode today um may 7th they are turning 13 years old, which is so exciting and so cool to celebrate them. So aside from listening to this podcast and just getting to know Rebecca and Project Heal in general, make sure you head to the show notes, gather all the information for how to get connected, how to donate to this organization if you're feeling called to do so. And also all of their social media, they'll be sharing lots of fun content this week and just ways that you can get involved. But truly, if if you are really feeling like you want to get behind an organization this year, I can't recommend checking out Project Heal enough. They are doing incredible work and just have so much 
heart and soul for people in all walks of life as it relates to eating disorders. And so I will leave you with that and let you get to know Rebecca and this conversation. Um, and I hope you have a great start to your week. You're awesome. All right, Rebecca Ayer. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really so grateful for your time and I am really looking forward to getting to know you and this conversation that we're about to have. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Mm. Let's just jump right in. There's so much to talk about. So the first question that we ask everyone on the show is your first body awareness moment. So if you wouldn't mind sharing what that looked like for you, that moment where you realized I'm in a body and this means something in the world that I'm living in and also how that impacted your relationship with your body and or food in general. Yeah. Um, so interesting. It seems like such a simple question. And as a therapist, I've definitely asked this many times before, but I don't know that I've ever personally answered it. Um, frankly, I think my first memories of my body were actually around, um, abuse that I experienced, um, when I was seven from a family member, some sexual abuse. Um, and so it was a very sort of confusing and obviously stressful experience. Um, and I definitely feel like it is a disorienting experience to have your first body awareness experience be as a child and a sexual experience. And I think that has certainly um, been something I've had to work through and on for many, many years of my life. Um, so that's the, the literal true answer. And I think definitely affects aspects of my relationship with my body uh, for sure. The other thing that comes to my mind though has to do with body image. Um, and I'm thinking about around a year later in third grade when I was eight years old. Um, I, I just remember becoming hyper, uh, self-conscious about various things like, um, you know, super self-conscious about my, my front teeth, which were really big and had a space between them and really self-conscious about um, my index fingers, which I thought bent a weird way and super self-conscious about the fact that my legs weren't shaved. And I, you know, saw the hair on my legs and other people seemed not to have as much like leg hair as me. And I just remember like trying to hide all of these things. Um, like, you know, really like it just consumed my brain to like keep my hands hidden or to keep my, you know, like legs hidden, even, you know, when I wished I was wearing shorts because it was super hot out or whatever else, you know, might be, I think it's interesting that my first awareness of my body was so self-conscious and really preoccupied with what other people thought. It really wasn't necessarily that I thought that there was something wrong with me as much as I was convinced other people were disgusted by me. <laughs> mm. um, and I don't know, I don't remember exactly when I moved on from that. Um, I do remember, you know, eventually I started to shave my legs or, um, maybe other things became more important to me as the years passed. And I just, I it didn't, I, it's like 
it proved to be, I think, a pretty big waste of time to spend so much time being preoccupied with those things. And I mean, that's sort of a privileged thing to say because, you know, I don't have body dysmorphia, right? I don't have a, um, a mental illness or diagnosis that actually like makes it impossible for my brain to refocus on other things. So I was able to refocus on other things. And I just, I just did, I moved along to probably popularity contests and (laughs) avoiding homework and other things, um, dealing with stress at home. Um, so in a lot of ways, I think whenever I speak with a patient who it does have body dysmorphia or who are like so, so fixated and preoccupied on how they might be being perceived or like fixated on specific body parts. I think I recall that experience and just imagine if that experience had never gone away, you know, how exhausted I would be. Um, and it's just like a little window that I have into, into their experience, but certainly, you know, at this point, it was like over 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that it's interesting to think about kind of self-awareness versus like other awareness and that journey of like, this is my psychology brain coming out, but the, the moment that occurs when we're around that age, right? Six, seven or eight, where we suddenly become aware that other people exist, (laughs) that they have, they have like a whole self and a whole brain and a whole perception of reality. And we're like, capable of being perceived by them. It's a, it's kind of like when empathy, genuine empathy develops and our capacity to conceptualize like the internal world of someone else as being separate from ours. Um, and it's interesting that like the first stage of that is about how they then perceive us. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, anyway, fascinating stuff to me. It, it is to me as well too. I love, I love the psychological development of just humans in general in in terms of self-awareness and other awareness and and all of those things. Um, What was your relationship with food like growing up? Did this impact your relationship with your body at all or just in general, what was it like? Yeah, I, that's such a, an interesting thing as well, because as an eating disorder therapist, and um, it's just been such a huge part of my life to talk about and to understand body image. um, I have always had a fairly, um, intuitive relationship with food and a fairly manageable, manageable relationship with my body. Um, and it has a lot to do with my privilege. So, um, my, my metabolism has always been high. I've always been able to eat whatever I want without having weight fluctuations. And like, I grew up without a lot of money and we ate a lot of what many would call junk food now, but I just, I think it's just more like processed food, like a lot of Mac and cheese and fish sticks and Doritos and soda and fruit roll-ups and Twinkies and all of the things that are shelf stable for many (laughs) years. Um, and, and are also very, very delicious. So that's what I grew up on. And, um, I always just ate until I was full. I think that one interesting thing is that my mom has um, anorexia. And so growing up with her, who was, you know, measuring portions in the kitchen and really prided herself on how little she ate, I, and I had a really contentious relationship with her. I just always did the opposite of her in, in a lot of ways. And so 
Um, and you know, when you're a kid, people comment on things like, oh my gosh, you, I, how can you eat like that and look like that? And pe- people are always just commenting on like how kids can just eat and not, you know, they're commenting on their bodies. And so in my case, they commented on the fact that I seem to be sort of like a bottomless pit of endless capacity. <laughs> and I took that to heart and it really built sort of an innate trust with my body that I could just eat what I wanted and not, um, worry about anything. Um, and, and also I think because my mom was, had an eating disorder and was incredibly restrictive, she never forced us to eat past the point of fullness. Um, that was actually a big gift that she gave us. She just always, once I was done eating or like, you know, if I was full, that was the end of this conversation, right? I was never forced to sit at the table and finish my, my plate. And so I think there is something about like, you know, so many parents, basically teach their children to stop trusting their bodies, to not trust their body's cravings, to not trust their body's hunger or satiety cues, right? Like this isn't the time to eat, or um, this is how much you need to eat. And if you don't finish this, then you don't get this. And there's like so many um, kind of outside cues of like what what a kid should be putting in their bodies and instead of listening. And I think, for better or worse, and all of the things that I learned from my mom that were not helpful, I think one of, I think it's really, really helpful that I never, I never was forced to sort of ignore my body's cues. So what that meant is that if I was in the mood for, you know, processed food, I ate it and then I ate it until I was full and then I stopped. (laughs) If I was in the mood for something else, like, you know, if it happened to be available, then I would eat that. Um, And I don't know, it, gave me a really relaxed relationship with food. I mean, I definitely went through periods in my adolescence of like, you know, preoccupation and insecurity about whether I was pretty enough, whether I was thin enough, whether I was, you know, developing at the right rate or dressing the right way or doing my hair the right way or doing my makeup the right way, you know, all of these like image obsessed kind of thoughts um, and, you know, wanting to be liked and believing very much that had to do with my appearance. Um, And, you know, again, I really fit the mold in so many ways. Um, I was, you know, a relatively cute, you know, relatively thin white girl. And so I was typically, I moved a lot when I was a kid and I would go to a different school every, sometimes at least every year, if not every other year for the majority of my childhood. And I would always end up kind of with the popular kids, um, by the nature of like fitting the mold, um, and being outgoing and like how I looked definitely was part of it. And so, I know all of this might be really obnoxious to hear, but um, there's something about all of this that it's like, it just didn't become the focal point of my identity development in terms of like being a problem area, right? Like I didn't struggle with weight fluctuations. I didn't struggle with um, being bullied or excluded. And I think those things were really incredibly lucky on my part. because I, other than those things, right. I have a lot of predisposing factors to eating disorders. I have, it runs in my family, um, multiple family members with eating disorders. I have trauma history. I have control issues. I have all of these things, but just sort of baseline, um, fitting the mold and learning how to trust 
my body's uh, cues, like from an early age ended up working for me. And I will let you know this, like if I had just happened to have a different metabolism, like I a hundred percent would have developed an eating disorder because <laughs> I would have not, like, I would have learned I can't trust my body. Right. I would have learned I can't put anything I want in my body and it, and it would just stay the same. Um, and then I think, and absolutely my household was fatphobic, my mother very much. So, and we, I grew up very inundated with that. And so without that genetic predisposition to being thin, 100%, I would have, um, immediately turned to eating disorder behaviors to try to do something about my body. If it wasn't doing the thing I wanted it to do, it just happened to do the thing that I wanted it to do, or that I thought it was supposed to do. Um, and I think I, a lot of my mental energy around my body, gosh, was much more focused on, um, sexuality relationships, dating, um, a lot of like self-destructive behaviors with substances, um, you know, smoking from a young age, drinking alcohol, experimenting with drugs, um, a lot of like rebellion, you know, delinquency, running away from home, skipping class. Like I was much more like behaviorally, um, acting out my pain than like internalizing it with my, you know, with my food or my body image. That's just how my personal pain manifested. Mm-hmm. Um, and made my life very, very difficult. Um, and I, there were certainly periods of time where I didn't like take very good care of my body at all, but never, I never developed an eating disorder in my, in my youth, which I consider myself really, really lucky for. And I continue to not have an explanation for, for that. Besides, I think just um, good luck, like genetically, um, your metabolism wise combined with the, the, the fortune of, um, yeah, being taught that I could just eat what I wanted when I, and stop when I wanted. Mm-hmm. Did you have any awareness of eating disorders when you were growing up? I know, you, I know you mentioned your mom struggled with anorexia. Did mm-hmm. you recognize that at the time? Or is that something that you made the connection to later on in life? What was your reality with eating disorders when you yeah. were? Yeah. I, I, um, I was aware of them. I was aware of them really. I mean, I don't know what age I became aware of them, but my mom was the kind of person who, uh, bragged about hers. So it's a kind of a strange dynamic. Um, what do you mean? Can you give an example, like bragged about her eating disorder? What did, what did that look like? It's so hard to put language to interestingly. Um, but I mean, being like bragging, like, oh my gosh, I haven't eaten anything all day. Um, And then I'm like, you know, making sure people saw that she was measuring out, you know, her food and making sure people knew how little she had eaten or making sure people knew how much she had exercised. And um, I don't know if it's bragging is the right way. And maybe this is totally skewed by my childhood, you know, like language. Cause I haven't talked about it in a really long time, but, um, my mom is, it hasn't has narcissistic personality disorder too. And so there's a real kind of superiority thing that she has and like a, a demand for, um, 
admiration and like loyalty and like um, praise. And if you don't give those things, then you're in a lot of trouble. And so it, it was always woven into me and um, that she really thought she was better than other people because she was restrictive and because she was disciplined. There's a lot of discipline um, even, and I won't get into too much detail here, but like there was some substance stuff. And I, I remember her specifically bragging that she only did a little bit of drugs, like, and, and it was just a little bit every day. Um, right. And so there's just like, I think most people who have struggled with um, anorexia know that the eating, the anorexic like mind, the anorexic voice in particular there's a certain pride, there's a certain superiority um, that they're able to sort of master their, their, their humanity, their needs, their hunger, their body. Um, and I'm, I think it's mixed with a million other things, but there's definitely this like sort of subtle thrum of, um, of pride mm-hmm. to being able to conquer uh, what they might perceive as like the weakness of hunger or the weakness of appetite. Um, and so that was definitely what I grew up around. And I think because I sort of always was very precocious when I was younger, I always sort of saw through my mom in in all the ways. And I just associated those things with each other. And I just was like, Oh, I never want to be like that. Um, and so it just put me off of it. I, again, I, I can't say what I would have done if I hadn't had, um, the metabolism or the, you know, genetic build, right. My body type that I had. Um, but because I didn't have to worry about that and I could still meet sort of society's stereotypical beauty standards without being preoccupied with my body. There was this weird way, actually, now that I'm saying it, there was this weird way in which I actually felt superior to my mom. I was like, you know, you're spending all this time being so obsessed with this thing and I can do it without even thinking about it. And I don't, I feel that way at all now about anyone (laughs) who struggles with, um, you know, restriction or eating disorders, but you know, my like 10 year old brain definitely thought that about my mom. I just, I was very angry with her. So I was always looking for ways to distance myself and differentiate myself from her. Yeah. How did you get into this work, Rebecca? How did you, I mean, especially growing up in a house with with somebody who is struggling with an eating disorder, how did you even begin to think that this is something that you wanted to do as a career? Yeah, that's a really good question. Frankly, I I did not want to work with eating disorders actually. So I, um, because of you know my experience with my mom, and after that, I had a number of friends and um, people, you know. Um, in my life who had struggled with eating disorders and none of them had at that time in my life, like been to treatment or recovered. And so I, I had a really strong association with people who have eating disorders as being like, you know, not willing to get help. Um, not, I, I had never met a recovered person. Um, let's just say that. And so what do you mean by that? Can you, can you like, can you elaborate on that? I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, I had never met anyone who had an eating disorder who acknowledged they had a problem, 
sought help, got help, mm. and then and then recovered and then basically like repaired their relationship with food and then and ever talked about the idea of recovery. I mean, the idea of recovery had never occurred to me. Interesting. Uh, it just seemed like it seemed like this thing that people struggled with and it made them really, really hard to be close to. Um, and for that, and, and like, you know, I have, as you might imagine from everything I've shared so far, I have some issues around my mom. So I was like, you know, I just assumed I would be very, very triggered working with people with eating disorders. And I just didn't want to deal with it. So I was in grad school. We were in our final second to final year. So I guess our middle year when we had to pick our, um, internship for our final year. So we went to this fair and there were all of these, um, you know, therapy clinics and treatment centers and placements that, you know, master's level therapists could go and get their clinical hours, um, to, you know, meet the requirements for graduation. So I went around and talked to all of these facilities and clinics and professionals and all of these things. And there was this eating disorder treatment center at the fair. And it was literally the last table I went to and I circled around it. And I was like, going talking to everyone else, but them. And I was just like, I, I really don't want to work at an eating disorder treatment center. And then I ended up talking to them very, very last thing. And I just said, you know what, I feel like this might be too close to home for me, you know, but I'm curious about this. And I started asking questions and we just started vibing and what I realized in talking about eating disorders, you know, clinically for the first time was that I really understood them because I had been around them my whole life. Um, and not just with my mom, but with, you know, my sister and with friends I had had. And I just intuitively knew what that they were about more than food and more about more than body image. And I just, um, assumed what would be a liability, what, what I assumed would be a liability turned out to be an asset. And so, uh, I ended up going to the interview and again, very ambivalent, um, and kind of resistant and then just had a really good interview. So I was offered the internship and I was like, okay, let's do this. And probably my first week, I realized that I loved working with people who had eating disorders and the key difference in my work uh, versus my personal experience up to that point is that every single person there by default of being there had acknowledged that they had an issue and had sought out treatment and was doing it, right? Was there doing work. Um, now granted over the years, I learned a lot about who has access to treatment and all of the uh, people who might, might want treatment but actually can't get into treatment. But at that time, without a mind for that, I really, all I was really thinking about was like, you know, um, someone who took accountability for their lives and for their, for themselves and who, uh, were willing to be uncomfortable and do hard things for their own betterment. Um, and so that was true of all of these clients and patients I was working with. They were all so brave and doing really hard things and they were brilliant. And, um, you know, I just, I loved working with them so much. And so all of that sort of intuitive understanding I had about eating disorders came in handy, but I was learning about what it meant to be someone who was like willing to do something about it. Um, and to face it and to change. I think that's the main thing I want to say is like this willingness to change this openness to change. That's something I hadn't encountered before. 
And so then I think seeing and getting to be a part of people's recovery process and their healing and watching people like actually do the thing and actually recover and stop using behaviors and build a whole life and change and change the way they thought and felt and rewire their brains. Like watching that was so healing for me because I had never been a part of it. And I think in some ways I was like healing myself, um, and healing my own story by watching and being a part of people doing the thing that, you know, I wished at that time that people in my life were willing to do, but you know, that they, I knew they wouldn't ever do. Mm. Um, that's so beautiful. Yeah. It's really powerful stuff. And I'm so, so grateful and privileged to be able to do the work, but it's interesting because a lot of people are confused about why I ended up in this field (laughs) because I, you know, many, many people with eating disorders end up working with eating disorders. It's fairly common. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, people are confused when I say that I haven't, um, and it's even stranger that I'm so preoccupied with, you know, dismantling diet culture and fat phobia when I haven't personally, you know, experienced being in a large body or a higher weight body or a fat body. Like, and so what do I know about it? Right. I think I like lose credibility for a lot of people with eating disorders and a lot of people who have experienced fat phobia firsthand or who have, you know, really had to dismantle their own diet culture. Um, I'm a weird person in that, in that conversation. Cause they're kind of like, what are you doing here? Like, this isn't your story. Um, and I, I, I think that's a really strange uh, thing for people to sort of wrap their minds around, but it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. How have you navigated that? Um, just, would you call it imp- do you experience imposter syndrome with Mm -hmm. the idea of not having that personal lived experience? Do you feel like that's something that you've had to work through personally or professionally? Like when did you begin making the connection of like, Oh, I, I can't fully identify with what you're going through. And I'm also very passionate about doing this work in the dissonance with that. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, I still, it it really depends on the person, but I still am working through what it means for me to kind of, um, navigate, navigate that. I think there's a couple of answers I have to that. So when it comes to talking about bodies and talking about diet culture and fat phobia, like the most important thing is for me to acknowledge my, like my body, for me to acknowledge my privilege, for me to acknowledge my experience and like, um, not sort of co-opt anyone's experiences or claim to understand, right? Like not only is, (laughs) is that false and, you know, but it's, it's really harmful. And I think there's something really dangerous about people, especially even if you have significant body image distress. And even if you have a history of an eating disorder, like being in a thin body and, kind of co-opting the body acceptance movement as though, you know, there it's the same thing to be in a thin body and to hate your body and to be in a fat body that's being systematically abused by society. Like those are completely different categories. Right. And I think that they get lumped together and I, I think that's really harmful. So I, I think that in some ways, 
being outside of both of those experiences sort of helps me see how compli- how um, problematic they it is to clump them together. Um, and so in that way, I think it's a little bit of an asset. I think that I just name what I know and what I don't know um, as often as possible. And I, I think never um, claiming experiences or knowledge, personal firsthand knowledge that I don't have, um, I think rings true for people. And I think, you know, all of the clients I've ever worked with, no one has ever said like, you know, you don't understand. You don't seem to understand eating disorders. Like, I don't know why, but I really do. (laughs) I really, really do. And I, I understand that I haven't had, you know, the full spectrum experience, but I have, um, I mean, I had a period in my late twenties, uh, where I ended up losing a significant amount of weight due to some stress. And I ended up having to like put myself on a meal plan and refeed myself and weight restore. And so not that that's an eating disorder experience, but like I have some of the physical experiences of that discomfort. I have some of the understanding of like the thought processes. I just hasn't ever met like diagnostic criteria. So I guess I would say like, I have a really deep understanding of disordered eating. Um, and I, and I think that because of how my brain works and the degree of empathy I have, like, and the willingness to acknowledge what I don't know, like, I think that people accept me in the, in the club, so to speak, even though I, you know, haven't been down that exact path. I think that it's really helpful to remember that like nobody's eating disorders experience is the same. And, you know, anyone, even if they have lived experience, hasn't experienced all of the components. And so, and there's such so much variety in the eating disorder community in terms of, you know, behavior presentation, um, you know, underlying causes and all of these things that it's sort of like comparison is not helpful. Um, and in that way, I think that, um, it works out. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. I think that also the last thing I will say about like, um, you know, what it, means for me to be in the, um, really, really passionate about being anti-diet culture and being that positive. Um, I think a big part of why I understand (laughs) that, uh, diet culture is BS and why I understand that, um, that like our society is fat phobic, like actually has to do with the fact that I'm in the body that I am and that I have not done anything to deserve it. Mm -hmm. So there's something about like, you know, I remember once I was at a work in in a work setting and there was like a weight loss competition for quote unquote health and wellness. And um, like I won something and I didn't do anything. Like I just won because I was already thin and I like, you know, ate macaroni and cheese every single day and who cared, you know, I just like, Mm. and that to me, like just, is a really silly little example of like, um, I have a really deep understanding in my body and in my life that like my, whether I'm healthy or not has really nothing to do with how I look. People assume I'm healthy, even though I may or may not be because I am thin. I'm like, I don't exercise. I don't drink enough water. I smoke cigarettes for years. And that whole time, nobody ever questioned whether I was healthy because of how I looked. Mm. And there's something about how, um, 
and people assumed that I had an eating disorder and people assumed, people assumed a lot of things about me based on my appearance. And most of it wasn't true. And I think what that revealed to me, because I wasn't actually struggling with these things so often is that it's like a real (laughs) crapshoot, like the way, and I, and then working with so many clients where it's like, some of these folks were eating like a quarter as much as I do, right? Like a fraction of what I do. And they were in bodies, you know, much, much larger than mine. And they were experiencing societal shame and, um, you know, discrimination and they, and they, and they were spending all of their life and their energy and their, you know, mental health to try to be in a body like mine, right? That I didn't do a single thing to get in. To me, it just, it reveals to me how basically what you put in, like what you are doing with your food and, you know, how much energy you spend on it and all of these things, like it just, it does not, it's, it very rarely is a direct correlation to your appearance. And for that reason, uh, it just reveals to me how much our like, healthism and the biases we have about size, having a correlation to health are just completely manufactured and they're not based in science. Um, and I just feel like my lived experience is evidence of that in the, in the, in the inverse. Mm-hmm. That makes any sense. It does. Yeah. <laughs> and I also just want to echo what you're saying. And, you know, I, I think that there is so much power in, being a professional in this space who doesn't have a personal lived experience with an eating disorder, but you also have the environmental experience of mm-hmm. watching your family members go through this and close friends. And also, you know, there's something really powerful in just that observation and what you can bring to your expertise from just having that awareness compounded with your education and your empathy and your mm-hmm your passion for this work that I think just it's, it sounds like it makes you a very um, just informed person to work with in this area, an expert, if you will. So I, I really appreciate that about you. And I also can understand like, it's, I think there's always that level of, especially in the intuitive eating, eating disorder, you know, this whole space, it, it, it almost is like you have to be indoctrinated into it by going through it yourself. And I just think that there's more room for people who have never personally gone through an experience mm-hmm. like that to like yourself, like who can show up and share more powerfully. Um, you just, you bring a different viewpoint, which I think is, is so yeah. powerful in this work. I also, I'm also curious, Rebecca, you, you keep saying that you have this deep understanding of eating disorders. And I also have really picked up on you just sharing that you, you have this knowledge and had always had this intuitive knowledge that eating disorders are way more than Mm -hmm. food and body image. So can you elaborate on that? What is, what do either of those things and, and both of them combined mean for you? What does that intuitive understanding of eating disorders look like for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that this dovetails a little bit also with what your comment just was about, you know, what I shared and what I bring. It's like my brain, everybody has a different kind of 
cognitive processing style and a different, um, you know, I'm very into like astrology and the Enneagram and like all these personality tests and like just the way that my brain works and the way that I process things is it lends itself to understanding these things. Uh, and so basically <laughs> um, I'm incredibly intuitive. Like I'm an ENFJ. So I'm like very intuitive. I'm a cancer. I'm an Enneagram too. For anyone who knows anything about any of these things, it's like, I'm just like, I'm basically like very porous. Like I can sort of feel and experience other people's experiences. Like I would maybe describe myself as an empath or at least a highly sensitive person where someone shares something with me and I, I'm like in it with them in a way that um, really like transports me in many ways into their experience. And then I also have this brain that sort of conceptualizes things in um, as connected and as interconnected. And I can sort of apply patterns that I see across like conversations. Like if I see like that, a that what is a good example? Like you know, basically like if there's a law of like how a human being thinks that applies in like the workplace, then I can see how that might show up in parenting or how that might show up in a dating relationship. Like I can, I can just see how a person's like way of being shows up metaphorically in a lot of other areas. So I see all of these things as like very, very related. I see eating disorders as actually being like really complex. Well, first of all, they're genetic and brain disorders in many cases, but in terms of like the formation of an eating disorder, I see it very much as like an expression of something for which a person does not have words for yet. I see it as a way of coping with, um, the, you know, unbearable experiences that they have in their bodies. I see it as, um, in many ways, like a, a metaphor for their relationship to desire in general, um, and to their vulnerability as a human being in general. And I think that, you know, the same extremes of what a person might do with food, another person might do with money, or they might do with sex, or they might do with gambling, or they might do with any number of other things. And I'm not saying that they're all exactly the same. What I'm saying is that, you know, of all of the ways in which humans um, cope with what it means to be alive and how unbearable that can feel at times. And, um, and you know, we, we find ways to escape our painful experiences and we find ways to cope with our distress. And in many ways, eating disorders are the one that makes the most sense because food is so essential to the human experience. It's our first experience with connection um, with our, you know, primary caregiver, right? When we're born, right? We learn to eat at the same time as we have our first sort of physical contact with another person and our dependence on them for our livelihood becomes, I think, really hardwired into our psyches, like before we even have language. And, you know, when you think about as a therapist, I think about attachment all the time. And I think about early childhood relationships and how those shape our style of relating to ourselves and to others and to the world for our entire lives. Like food is a very obvious way, food and body, right? These are so visceral They're, you know, you can't be abstinent. You have to engage with these things. They um, carry so much 
meaning. They carry so much pleasure. They carry so much pain. They're like, they're just so ripe for so much, um, I think, metaphor. And so in so many ways, I see people with eating disorders on a certain level as being like really, really sophisticated um, storytellers where like, of course, unconsciously or subconsciously, they're not doing this like to be artists. <laughs> they're, they're in a lot of pain, but I see like normally what we get to about what their behaviors are accomplishing for them and like what their real needs are underneath the, their behaviors are usually like incredibly complicated and quite beautiful um, ways of expressing in a very kind of primal way, something complicated that they don't yet kind of fully understand. And that's what I think eating disorder treatment can be a real asset for is like helping people put language to the unspeakable and to the thing that they haven't been able to say even to themselves yet. Um, And to help them find replacement behaviors that like provide some of the same benefits of the eating disorder behaviors without any of the risk or any of the harm and like acknowledging the gifts that the eating disorder gave them. And all of these things to me feel like, um, uh, it's, it's like my understanding of how human beings are and how human beings, you know, think how they feel, how they change and how they relate. Like the eating disorder experience, like fits in that, in a way that like, just sort of clicks for me and makes sense to me. Um, and I hope that answers your question, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's something I'm very like passionate about. And I think that it's also, and, and one more thing to go back to what you said before, where I'm like, I think that just as much as people sort of tend to really like respond and resonate with somebody who has lived experience themselves of, you know, having had an eating disorder. Um, I think that sometimes people who have lived experience in that they have themselves had an eating disorder could be harmful in like assuming that other people's eating disorders experiences are the same as theirs. And I think that is where like um, just having lived experience uh, without really understanding completely different experiences than yours, like is, you know, a liability as well. And so to me, it's like, whether you have lived experience yourself or whether your lived experience is having, you know, been with around other people who have had it or whatever else, like you have to be able to have an imagination for what a different kind of, um, bodily experiences for what a different kind of what's, for what someone who you don't actually have anything in common with, right. Um, what their experience might be. Mm -hmm. Um, because other than otherwise, you know, you're like just sort of copy and paste apply all, and it's not, um, it's not accurate or considerate and, you know, eating disorders are so unique. The difference between someone who, you know, has autism spectrum disorder and has ARFID and, you know, has, um, you know, is, um, a male and who is, you know, um, 
a twin, right? Like that eating disorder experience and like a, you know, 45 year old queer black woman who's living in a food desert and struggling with bulimia is it's just like, how could you say, oh, well, I had anorexia. So I understand both of those. Like they're, they're not the same as yours. So it's like, you have to develop, I think a really rich imagination for what eating disorders actually are about and what they mean before you could, reasonably bring your lived experience to, to bear on anyone else's. God, I so appreciate you saying that. I think, I don't think that's something that we talk about nearly enough. And as, um, you know, myself as a practitioner, I, I specialize in disordered eating, not, not, um, people with active eating disorders, but I have my own lived experience with my eating disorder and recovery. And I, I think that is so humbling to just be reminded of um, the humility and the individuality of everybody's unique experience yeah. all the time. And um, I just really appreciate you saying that. One thing that I think is interesting, I loved when you said that um, you consider people who have eating disorders, storytellers, like they have their own unique story. And mm-hmm. One thing that I share with so many of my own clients is I I call them red stocking people. And -hmm. essentially, I don't know if you resonate with that at all, but it's, it's essentially like somebody who goes into a room and feels different and is probably seen as different and not necessarily in a negative way. But I, I feel like these are the artists, these are the creators, even if people don't identify as that, there's just this unique thread that I found with so many of the people that I support in my practice where mm-hmm. you, you stand out and that's also been used against you in so many ways and has created discomfort in, in so many situations as well too, that is hard to express and hard to cope with. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think people with eating disorders, if I had to say, you know, what the most likely thing that they all have in common is that they're very sensitive. Mm. I've never met anyone with an eating disorder who is not very sensitive. They're usually actually like the best at perceiving their surroundings. Like they're usually like the one who is actually the most um, aware of like dysfunction in the family, who is the most sensitive and attuned to changes in their environment or to shifts in dynamics. And I just, I think like, you know, in a lot of ways, we pathologize the people who hold up the mirror. Um, And I see people as with eating disorders, as people who are sort of holding the mirror up, not only to their family, but to our culture and saying like, this is, this is the true manifestation and the true, um, embodiment of like the thing that you're creating, like, (laughs) um, it's the sort of extreme bodily visual representation of like, you know, the values that American culture perpetuates that dysfunctional and, and abusive or, you know, narcissistic or emotionally stunted families create, like it's, it's usually, um, in a lot of ways, like they're, they might be the one who's the 
most obviously struggling, but they're actually the ones who are in, who are most connected to reality in a way that's almost painful. And that's of course why they revert to playing something out with their bodies is because it's like, reality is really hard to live in. I don't know if you noticed that. (laughs) Just a bit. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. So I'm, I'm curious and you don't have to answer this if you're not comfortable, but I think this is really profound what you're, what you're sharing here. And I'm also curious if you're able to identify this with your mom at all and having this experience mm-hmm. of growing up with your mom and, and having this rebellious experience as the child of, I never want to be like that. And the rigidity around some of the behaviors and the narcissism that you expressed doing the work that you're doing now, have you found an opportunity to shift your opinion or or any insight into looking at her as, as a reflector, kind of what you're sharing uh, about people with eating disorders in general or do you find that to be different? Um, Caitlin bringing, that is a really good question that I uh, will probably bring to my therapist my, during my next session. Um, I appreciate that question. Mm. I, I think that, I think that the short answer is no, I haven't, I haven't gone back and actually done that um, work around my mom. I think that what I can say is that I know my mom has a lot of trauma. Um, and I, you know, do have a lot of compassion for like that she did the best that she could. Um, I know that that is true. I think that she caused me so much harm and is at this point, you know, so, um, un so toxic and so unhelpful for me that, um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't want her and, you know, I wouldn't want to be actively engaged with her regardless. Um, but I know, I think that what's true is that I have a lot of like forgiveness work to do. And I don't know that I've like fully applied everything I just described about people with eating disorders. I have, I I could not fully say about my mom. I have not fully, I think that would require some more forgiveness work from on my part. Well, I I appreciate you sharing that. And I also want to just acknowledge your humanness in sharing that. And these wounds are so deep and it does, you know, even knowing all of the things as professionals, I feel like sometimes it's, it it gets exhausting in that comparison, that self-comparison of, oh, I should I should be able to do this in my own life. And the reality is you're human having your own experience and your own journey. And so um, I just appreciate your vulnerability with, with this whole conversation. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that I'm being invited to think about myself in this way. Like I said, before we started, I talk about my work a lot. Um, and I talk about, I can talk about eating disorders all day, every day. Um, but very rarely am I invited to like reflect on these issues for myself. Um, so this is really interesting for me. Yeah. Well, I do want to ask a couple of other things because I am the most curious person you'll ever meet probably (laughs) podcast host. (laughs) Well, you just said a couple of things that I'm like, I want to go back to that. So one of the things that keeps coming up is, um, 
the willingness to change for people who are in eating disorders and your experience with being around people who did not have that willingness and in your professional experience of actually seeing that willingness to change, what do you think moves the needle for somebody who's, who's just not there yet? Like what, what does that look like for somebody who is unwilling versus willing and what naturally takes somebody over that hump or maybe unnaturally, what have you just seen in your own experience? Yeah, I wish I knew what the thing was. I mean, I do a lot of like motivational interviewing and I think a lot about, you know, how to get someone to like tip the scale, so to speak, um, like to, to reach that tipping point where they say, okay, I am willing to do this after, you know, many, many years of resistance in a lot of cases. I think that with the proper amount of support, um, most people could get there depending on, I guess, some other, like whether there's a personality disorder, you know, complicating things, that's a whole different situation. But um, I think most people, if they were given a container uh, within which they could learn that they are capable of like doing hard things and tolerating distress, um, I think most people would be willing to do the hard work of change. Um, But so few people have, a container within which they are held and told that they can handle it and they, and like shown that they can survive it. I think that a lot of people over years, like become completely convinced that they will not survive. Like I could never, like, I can't even get started on this because I know it will just literally swallow me alive. Like they think it will kill them. It will kill them to do this work. And I think they're like, this is a better sort of like, it's a lack of imagination. It's a lack of trust. And it's, probably in a lot of ways, like I just said, like an accurate read of their environment that says, you know, I mean, my family will fall apart. My marriage will fall apart. I'll lose my job. Like, um, I don't think my life will be able to tolerate this. Um, and you know, or they think they'll have a psychiatric, you know, like a, a psychiatric breakdown and end up, you know, not being able to keep themselves safe. And they just like a really deep sort of belief that they won't be able to handle it. Um, and so I think it looks a lot of different ways. People will use a lot of excuses and point the finger at, you know, things outside of their control and all of those things. But I think at their heart, it's really like, I am terrified. Um, and I don't actually, like, I don't have the skills or the tools and I don't have the safety in my life to do it. Um, and so this is where, having an amazing support system, having really good therapy changes everything is that you learn. And and in your case, um, if you're doing, you know, work with people in similar situations, it's like, you probably provide a lot of safety for people to like test the water, to dip their toe in and go, did I survive that? Is everything okay? Okay. I guess I can tolerate a little bit. Let me put my whole foot in. Right. And it's like gradually learning, like, oh, I can actually tell the story of the worst thing that ever happened to me. And then, and then I can like breathe and then I'll, and then I can actually sleep that night. And like, you know, my worst nightmare is not true. Um, but that takes something that many people, you know, don't get what, if they have harmful, you know, families of origin, if they have harmful, you know, partnerships, if they have toxic friendships, if they have, um, 
you know, no good insurance and there and not a lot of extra income and therefore they've never been in therapy. Like what basis do they have to presume that they would be able to, to, to do any of that? I mean, I, they don't have any good reason to think that they could tolerate it because no one's ever helped them or shown them that they can. And they, and they don't have like the scaffolding. I I think of that word a lot um, with, with therapy and with, you know, doing internal work and especially doing depth work and actually changing is like, we need scaffolding around the building or else the thing is going to collapse. And I think people know that. And, and they're also sometimes, assuming that that will be the case, even when they do have scaffolding. And so that's, I think, a helpful delineator too, is it's like, are you being, is, are you accurately perceiving the the threat and the lack of capacity or are you, or the lack of support, or are you just so um, kind of fused with your terror that even though we're all, you know, maybe somebody will have like a loving partner and friends and an amazing therapist and this whole treatment team and everybody's rooting for them. And they're just like, I refuse. Uh, it's like that person, you know, can't see or feel or trust the scaffolding. And, and I don't know, part of, you know, my, my interest in this work is trying to help that person in particular mm. um, trust the scaffolding. But then my work at Project Hill is very much about like acknowledging just how many people, how many millions and millions of people don't have any scaffolding um, and trying to help them get some so that they can have a shot at healing. Well, let's talk about that. So Project Heal, I mean, this is like the coolest company ever. <laughs> and can you, and this goes right in alignment with what we're talking about, what you're sharing right now. So can you just share with our community what Project Heal is and and your role in this organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Project Heal is a national nonprofit that is focused on equitable treatment access for people with eating disorders. Um, and so essentially, uh, and I'm the CEO, so um, and we're a small organization, but we do serve people across the U.S. And we are essentially here to, um, our mission is to break down systemic healthcare and financial barriers to eating disorder treatment. And there's a lot packed in that mission, but the truth is that um, eating disorders are very common, right? They affect tens of millions of people that we know of, and um, only 20% of the people that we know of that have eating disorders access treatment. And then you know, reasons that they don't span from what we've talked about here, which is that lack of willingness. But in many, many cases, it's actually that eating disorder treatment is incredibly expensive. Most insurances don't cover it for the length of time that's required. And there's a lot of bias and discrimination um, in the eating disorder space in as well as, you know, the country at, at large. But in the eating disorder space, this bias that there's, um, that eating disorders are sort of a thin, rich white girl problem. And it's sort of like teenage girls who, you know, don't want to eat too much and don't want to be fat. Like this sort of like made for TV movie of what eating disorders look like, um, has not just been a public misconception. It's actually been infused into our treatment models, into our research about, um, evidence-based care. And so, like the treatment landscape is built for a really narrow group of people. Vast majority of research is um, into very narrow diagnosis of 
of who has eating disorders. And the truth is that most people with eating disorders are not underweight. Most people with eating disorders um, are not, you know, eating disorders affect people of all ages, of all races, of all genders. And so, so many of those, the consequences of those stereotypes um, are that, you know, when someone who falls outside of that stereotype realizes that they have an eating disorder and they go to receive care, like the treatment isn't designed for them, insurance companies don't cover them. <laughs> and um, in many cases, due to like how complicated systemic oppression and discrimination is, like they also oftentimes don't have amazing insurance and don't have a lot of expendable income. And so the barriers are stacked so high. So in a lot of ways, Project Heal is like, we see how expensive it is. We see how insurance isn't covering it. We see the systemic barriers that are resulting from this narrow definition of who has an eating disorder. And so we wanna break down all of those to help as many people get access to the treatment that they need. Um, so that they have a chance to recover. So we provide free treatment placements, uh, free clinical assessment, cash assistance, and um, insurance navigation support to try to help people overcome those barriers and get into to treatment. And in the meantime, you know, in a lot of ways, that program model is like plugging holes in a sinking ship. I actually just watched Titanic this weekend. So it feels, it feels, oh feels uh, somewhat accurate where it's like the system needs reform, right? Our healthcare system needs reform, insurance coverage needs reform, eating disorder treatment needs reform. Um, and so we are participating in that on an advocacy, you know, education and research level. And in the meantime, like people right now need help and they're, um, they're dying without support and they have absolutely no means to get it. And so those folks who we are able to help in the meantime, while we work big picture um, for like systematic actual change, uh, we're helping people get into care now. And so um, we're really, sadly and interestingly, we're the only you know, national nonprofit who's really doing this. There's like two other family foundations that offer some of this um, and they're, you know, helping very, very few people. And oftentimes the money runs out because this is a very expensive problem to solve. And so yeah. as you probably know, like eating disorder treatments, very, very expensive, as I've now said, like four times. Uh, so if we were to, if we were to like just pay for people's treatment, out and out with the money that we raised, we would help like one or two people a year. But with um, the with the systems that and the programs that we've built, they're a lot more scalable. And we actually helped more people in 2020 during you know what was a hellscape of a year. We helped more people that year than we have cumulatively in our entire history. We actually helped 214 people access eating disorder treatment last year. Wow. Pretty incredible. Incredible. Yeah. So Rebecca, can you give an example of the process for how you would help somebody? And I know this is probably variable for a lot of different reasons, but for somebody who's listening to this, who's thinking, oh my God, this is like an answered prayer, either for me or somebody that I know, what, what does the process look like for getting support from Project Heal? Yeah. Well, everything starts with our application. Um, we have a pretty rigorous application process, which we're kind of working on um, revising and reforming. But, you know, we do need a lot of information in order to, to make good, you know, decisions about all of the applications that we get. So essentially a person applies, they give us some, some financial background, their insurance information, a picture of what's going on clinically. Um, and 
you know, a, a couple of other things. And then we basically review it and we, they, they can either say what they're applying for, you know, whether it's cash assistance or insurance navigation or for a treatment placement or a clinical assessment. And then, you know, or they can apply for all of them and we can kind of figure it out from there. Some people don't know exactly what they need, but let's just say someone, you know, is like, I don't know what I need. I just need help. And they fill out this whole application. Uh, what we would do is sort of look at it. If their clinical picture wasn't clear, we would do a clinical assessment with them to sort of help them get accurate about their diagnosis and really figure out what the right level of care for them is. And then let's say uh, they needed residential care, then we would be able to place them with one of our residential treatment partners for free for four to six weeks. Uh, we would pay for their travel um, through our cash assistance program. And then we would place them with an outpatient therapist afterwards that is through our healer circle as well. Um, and so that's like an example of someone utilizing all four of our programs. And some folks will come and they'll be like, you know, I already know my diagnosis. That person doesn't need a clinical assessment. They want treatment with a specific provider. They don't need cash assistance because they, you know, don't need travel support or whatever else. Um, I think what people want kind of what people need varies, but um, the insurance navigation program is kind of the most amazing thing that we do because we actually just get on the phone with people's insurance and um, and fight for them to get the coverage that they're entitled to legally, um, but are often denied. And we help them apply for single case agreements, which basically is like an exception. Um, and insurance companies do these things, but you have to know the right language and you need to um, be able to speak speak their language in order to get them to do the things mm -hmm. that they might, you know, be trained to say no to automatically. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we were able to like, uh, help connect people through their insurance with our insurance navigation specialists to $800,000 worth of eating disorder treatment last year. Wow. That is incredible. <laughs> incredible. And, and this is like treatment that they had been denied previously. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, how do you get funding? How, or I know that you have, um, an opportunity for everybody who's listening, who wants to participate in this mission there, there's a button to donate. So you can, you can obviously give cash contributions. Um, but do you partner with facilities? Do you partner with therapists who offer services pro bono? Do you do outreach for, um, like financial do donations from large organizations? What's, what's like a, an example of just how you facilitated the growth of, of your company? Yeah. I mean, all of the above is the answer. So cool. we have incredible treatment partners who treat our patients um, pro bono in exchange for, you know, cause marketing benefits and, um, you know, referral generation. Um, and just, I think we help vet, right. A lot of times outpatient therapists or dietitians are willing to treat people who are in financial need, but have no way to verify, you know, whether that person is like the most in need. Sure. We are able to through our, you know, application review process. Um, but everything that we do, every dollar that we operate with is donated. So we have incredibly generous individual donors. We have corporate partners. We have foundation partners. Um, and we have just amazing, um, like, 
ambassadors who do peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. So they like start their own fundraising page and raise awareness in their local communities and among their friends and family and spread the word. And so we have a really kind of remarkable breadth of um, revenue sources, but as a nonprofit, like there is no, <laughs> we are not making, nothing that we do generates revenue. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, we rely completely on the generosity of our, our donors and our partners. Mm. So we have, we're very, very lucky. We have an amazing community. And I think that this past year, as we've done a better job talking about, you know, the marginalized communities that are the most affected by systemic barriers. And as we've, um, as people become more and more aware of eating disorders in general, I think, and with Project Heal being, you know, the only organization that's strictly focused on like the healthcare equity of eating disorder treatment, um, we're, I mean, we're really, really fortunate to have a bunch of amazing people who are supporting us and anyone who's listening to this, who's moved by our mission, like any, every dollar counts. And we would really appreciate your support. Uh, we also like have amazing ambassadors. If you, anyone wanted to become an ambassador or, or if someone wanted to, um, you know, become a volunteer or there's a lot of different ways to get involved, but, uh, yeah, appreciate appreciate you, Caitlin, and this opportunity to talk about Project Heal. Yeah, I, I so appreciate you, Rebecca, and your story, your personal story, your vulnerability, and also the work that you are doing and the Project Heal team, everything that you're contributing. I mean, my heart is, oh my God, I want to cry. Like, it's just mm -hmm. so full from this conversation. You guys are just amazing. And for everybody that's listening, it's just, it's, it's an incredible, um, purpose-driven community that they have at Project Heal. So I highly encourage you to check it out. All right. Cue the waterworks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I almost cried earlier when I was talking about, um, the patients that I worked with in eating disorder space. So now we're even. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, before we, before we wrap, where can everybody find you personally? Project Teal, learn more about you. Of course, we'll link everything in the show notes, but if you wouldn't mind sharing, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, on Instagram, where we're most active, we're at Project Heal. Um, and then our website is uh, the Project Heal. So T H E Project Heal.org. Um, and my Instagram is private. So, so I just, <laughs> I have not, I don't have a single influencer bone in my body. So I won't, I won't share that. No one needs to see the memes that I, that I share. Do you also work with, uh, with patients individually, Rebecca, I do, or okay. I do, but I also, I'm not accepting new clients right now. Cause I'm just very busy with project heal. So I only have a few that I see on the side. Um, but I, I think my website is like RJ air therapy. I don't even remember. <laughs> I'm sure you could find it by Googling. <laughs> I'm calling awesome. you not a, not a very promotional person. Ever. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'm like, Hide me, hide me. <laughs> except, except, of course, I come onto podcasts and share my trauma history. So, I um, yeah, <laughs> I I have a lot of similarities to you just from everything that you shared. So, <laughs> I, I so appreciate you. You're freaking awesome, and uh, just give, give my love to the Project Heal team, and thank you so much. 
Thank you. This was really great. I really appreciate you. That's our show. Thank you to our producer, Stephanie Olea, our show manager, Shayla Anderson, and our incredible guest. If you want to stay connected and learn more about our guest today, click the show notes of this episode. And if this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend or leave a review so that we can continue to destigmatize these important conversations around our relationship with food and body and spread inspiration to more women. One last thing, please don't forget to hit subscribe so that you can save time and stay on top of each new episode every week. I'm sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. Talk to you soon.